Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September 2009 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and I'm joined this month by TLO's editor David Collingridge to discuss some of the issue highlights. David, let's start with a study actually looking at two trials concerning the treatment of prostate cancer. Just before we actually go into the details of the study, can you just give us some background here and remind us how prostate cancer is generally managed these days? Well, treatment of prostate cancer depends on the type and extent of disease, and the options run the full spectrum of modalities typically associated with cancer management, from simple watch and wait strategies for very small localised lesions, through to surgery, hormonal treatment, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. The precise combination and constitution of these latter options, again, really depends on the stage of disease. And David, these trials investigate the efficacy of a bisphosphonate, the one in question here being sodium clodronate. What do we know about this agent? Well, sodium clodronate was one of the first-generation bisphosphonates. We know that bisphosphonates have a role in bone demineralization, and they can prevent fractures. And it's thought they also have an anti-tumor property by modifying tumor growth factors, adhesion to tumor cells to the bone matrix, and also modifying tumor cell apoptosis. As a result, bisphosphonates are already well established in the management of multiple myeloma and breast cancer. So, given prostate cancer is characterised by osteoblastic metastases, the combined analysis of these two trials we're publishing this month tries to ascertain whether bisphosphonates might have a role in this setting also. And David, go on and briefly just summarise the design of these two trials. In these two British trials, sponsored by the MRC, 311 men with metastatic disease were recruited into the trial designated PRO5 and 508 men with non-metastatic disease were recruited into trial PRO4. In both trials, men were randomised to receive 2,080 milligrams of sodium clodronate or placebo for up to three years for metastatic disease and up to five years for non-metastatic disease. This new analysis looks at the long-term follow-up, a median of 11.5 years within these trials. The results, David, there seems to be a clear distinction here between the results for um, metastatic disease compared with that of local disease. Yes, that's right. These long-term data highlight an important distinction and help delineate who should be prescribed sodium clodronate. The results show a significant overall survival benefit for men with metastatic disease at presentation, equating to a 30% survival at 5 years and a 17% survival at 10 years, compared with just 21% and 9% respectively in the placebo groups. Among patients with non-metastatic disease, there's no evidence of benefit, as indicated by the hazard ratio of 1.12. The authors also present a number of exploratory interaction analyses for both trials, but the results, while suggesting a few nuances, do not materially affect these top-line take-home messages. What's your and the author's possible explanation of the difference between these two results? As I've just hinted at, these interaction analyses highlight a few nuances that give us some clues to these differences. So, for example, among men with metastatic disease, there were biochemical differences, such as raised alkaline phosphatase and creatinine, which are thought to affect osteoblastic activity and the pharmacokinetics of bisphosphonate excretion. So it seems there are biological factors related to the development and progression of bone metastases that affect treatment response. And David, next steps, the usual question really, do we need more research to confirm these findings in larger studies or are there implications for clinical management straight away, do you think? The data here support the use of bisphosphonates within the management strategy for metastatic prostate cancer and equally they suggest these agents probably shouldn't be used for men with localised disease. The next steps now are to ascertain whether the next generation of bisphosphonates, which are far more potent than sodium clodronate, can improve outcomes further and whether various other combinations of chemotherapy can be added into the mix. A number of trials are ongoing to look at these issues 
the MRC-sponsored Stampede trial being one of the most ambitious. Moving on, David, to a randomised trial called Passion P, and this concerns women with early-stage breast cancer undergoing sentinel lymph node mapping and biopsy. Give us some background here, please. Well, lymph node mapping and biopsy simply means identifying where the lymph nodes reside anatomically so that several can be resected for pathology. Biopsies are done to determine the stage of disease, and as we all know, accurate staging in any cancer is important to deciding on the most appropriate treatment options, and often gives us some clues on prognosis too. For identifying nodes in patients with breast cancer, radiolabeled colloids or blue dye is usually injected to visualise the location of the nodes for subsequent resection. Now, site of injection is contentious. Different practices exist, ranging from peritumoral to interparenchymal, subdermal, dermal and intertumoral injection. This procedure is associated with pain. So just to clarify the, the clear objectives of the, of the current study. Yes, that's right. There's been very little research looking into pain associated with lymphatic mapping. But given this procedure is an important component in disease management, it's very important to consider patient comfort in all aspects of their care, including diagnostic procedures. In this American study, 140 patients were randomised to one of four different groups. The groups included a control of topical 4% lidocaine cream plus technetium sulfur colloid and three study groups of topical placebo cream plus injection of technetium sulfur colloid containing neither sodium bicarbonate, 1% lidocaine, or sodium bicarbonate plus 1% lidocaine. The primary endpoint was patient-reported pain immediately after colloid injection using two different pain scoring systems. The results seem clear based on, as you say, these two different um, pain scores. Can you just uh, discuss those results and also the chemistry behind the way different results were observed here? The mean pain scores on both scales were significantly improved for patients who received the colloid injection with 1% lidocaine, with or without sodium bicarbonate. The reason for adding the bicarbonate to the various study groups was to adjust the pH of the injection fluid because there's some evidence that buffering improves patient comfort. However, this study showed no significant benefit to altering the pH of the injection solution. And actually, it was simply the mode of delivery of the local anaesthetic, either topical or subdermal injection, that clearly had the greater influence on patient pain. And David, the implications of these results, is there enough evidence from this to, again, to auto clinically practice at centres who can offer procedures like this? Well, although the, the absolute number of patients in the various groups in this trial seemed comparatively small, the trial was appropriately powered statistically to detect the reported changes in pain. Thus, the author's conclusion is reasonable in the suggestion that centres should now consider administering sub-areolar injections of radioisotope colloid in 4 milliliter quantities containing 1% lidocaine to improve patient comfort. And moving on to a slightly lighter issue, if you like, but still important. Back in 1823, when Thomas Wackley founded The Lancet, the weekly journal, he used a column to debunk some of what he considered the nonsense that was being propagated by parts of the medical profession, often concerning homeopathic remedies. And in a kind of similar way, you're, you're introducing a new column into The Lancet Oncology, David. Tell us more. Well, complementary and alternative medicines are used widely these days, and use among cancer patients is alarmingly quite high. And often there is very little evidence to, to support their use, but mass media coverage, lazy journalism, biased reporting and pseudoscience have all allowed these practices to creep into the public's consciousness as valuable medical practices. Somewhat disturbing is the fact that such thinking isn't just limited to lay people. There are a number of supporters among well-educated people who really should know better. With this in mind, it, it's remarkable that such debates have been ongoing among the pages of The Lancet back to its earliest issues in 1823, 
and yet here we are nearly 200 years later and the debate still rages on. In those inaugural issues, Thomas Wackley ran a regular column, as, as you mentioned, called Quack Medicines, to expose the truth behind popular alternative medicines of the day. We decided it would be a timely homage, if you like, to The Lancet's founder, to reintroduce this column to allow guest writers an opportunity to examine the evidence base for complementary and alternative medicines that are hitting the headlines today. Yes, David, and the first column you have is authored by Ben Goldacre, who people may well know in the United Kingdom for his column in the Guardian newspaper about bad science. Just briefly mention the sort of issues he's dealing with in this first column. Well, we were delighted Ben Goldacre found time to write for us, um, given his po- the popularity of his pieces in The Guardian. And in this article, Ben discusses the poor and often contradictory reporting in the mainstream media and how it might be leading to apathy amongst many people and a disbelief in all science and medical reporting. The article covers the contrasting reports on red wine and alcohol consumption, consumption of various food types and lifestyle choices. And finally, the piece champions the use of meta-analyses and systematic reviews, with the inference that these types of report are perhaps a much better source of reliable information, especially for the popular press, because they're less susceptible to large swings in recommendations and conclusions. I guess I just wonder, as I probably would have done in 1823 if I'd been around, isn't there just a slight danger that we're preaching to the converted here? Maybe differently in 1823, but surely in 2009, do we need to be telling educated, informed readers of the Lancet Oncology about this sort of thing? Well... To be honest, Richard, I'm not sure we are preaching to the converted. <laughs> there, there are a number of complementary medicines, for example, where the evidence base is far from conclusive. It's all rather contentious, and even amongst oncologists, <laughs> opinion is divided. These columns will allow us an opportunity to re-examine some of the evidence and reopen debate. But as you say, reigning in the popular press from sensationalist journalism is a key issue. But I'm not sure there's an easy answer to this problem in the current 24-7 pressures journalists are under to deliver breaking news around the clock. And to help sell newspapers. Exactly. And it's, I think it's uh, a pity that the pace of news reporting nowadays is eliminating well-reasoned opinion and feature news. And equally, there are a growing number of health and science journalists with very little or no scientific training. So it's perhaps not surprising that scientific articles are often misreported. Now, tackling perhaps some of these issues would be a good place in starting to improve the quality of information delivered to the general public. It's a perennial issue. Thanks for that, David. And let's just quickly finish off with the leader, which I see is calling for some beds to be banned. Why is that? Well, last month we published a short summary from the recent IARC monograph meeting in Lyon, France, in which the previous rating for ultraviolet-emitting tanning devices was upgraded to the highest risk category available, namely on the basis of all relevant evidence to date, these devices are officially carcinogenic to humans. The underlying meta-analysis that led to this conclusion showed a startling 75% increase in the risk of melanoma among people who began tanning regularly before the age of 30. Now, given generally agents in this highest risk category are either banned or heavily regulated to reduce risk, and given there are good alternatives to sunbeds, such as various lotions and sprays that can achieve the same or similar body image, can we ethically condone the use of such devices in the name of, well, vanity? I don't think we can, and I'm sure the time must have now come to see tanning saloons and sunbeds removed from our streets and homes. Yeah, it's difficult to to disagree with that, David. just want to check that we're also not saying that any exposure to sunlight, which is obviously different to a sunbed, but obviously it's still potentially carcinogenic, uh, is not something that 
we're talking about here. There's still a way that you can go away on holiday, protect yourself against the sun, but still come back with a, with a healthy colour. Is that right? Absolutely. A little bit of sun is, of course, good for you. But this is rather different from being fried at close range on a sunbed, provided you limit your exposure. It's all about everything in moderation. Don't spend large amounts of time in the sun without a high-factor sun cream, and especially seek the shade around noon when the sun is at its hottest. The Cancer Council Australia have long promoted a brilliant slogan to bear in mind when anyone's on holiday really, slip, slop, slap, which stands for slip on a shirt, slop on the sun cream and slap on a hat. Great one. Heading off to the Mediterranean in about 10 days time, so I will slip, slop, slap and I hope listeners are going to do so as well whenever they go into hot sunny areas but anyway many thanks David those uh, are some of the highlights from the September issue of the Lancet Oncology thank you all very much for listening and we'll see you next month